You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a PhD holding historian, a professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that makes legit, seriously researched American history come to life through entertaining stories. Join me for a chronological telling of the United States story, from the revolution to fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way from 1776 to the early 20th century. Listen to History That Doesn't Suck on Spotify. Hello, and thank you for joining the American Revolution. This week, episode 270, Stone Arabia and Clocks Field. Now, last week we covered the British capture and destruction of Fort Anne and Fort George, as well as the raid on Boston near Albany. Now, those actions were primarily designed to distract from another ongoing raid taking place further to the south. Sir John Johnson, along with Mohawk chief and British captain Joseph Brandt, and Seneca chief Cornplanter, led a combined force of around 1,000 men. They were a mix of Indians, Loyalists, and some British regulars. Among them were also some German Jaegers and Butler's Rangers. They also brought with them two small mortars and a brass three-pound cannon. Some estimates put the total number at only 800, some go as high as 1,500. It may be that the group started off with more, but that part of the group broke off before they engaged in any combat. According to some stories, a large group of the Indians left the raiding party and went home after some unspecified dispute. The leader, John Johnson, was the son of William Johnson, who had been the British Indian agent for decades before the Revolution. The Johnsons lived in upstate New York, and John grew up living along the Mohawk River. As a teenager, he moved to Philadelphia to continue his education. He saw his first military service during the French and Indian War, when, at age 13, he accompanied his father to fight the French at Lake George. During Pontiac's Rebellion, Johnson led an expedition into the Ohio country. In the mid-1760s, Johnson embarked on a grand tour of Europe. While in London, the king knighted him, Sir John. His father, William, died just before the Revolution. Johnson inherited expansive estates in New York, over 200,000 acres, along with his father's baronetcy and the position as Indian agent for the Iroquois. Since he remained loyal to the king, Johnson had to flee New York for Canada to avoid arrest by the Patriots. He received a commission as a lieutenant colonel and recruited the King's Royal Regiment of New York. He participated in the 1777 siege at Fort Stanwix under General Barry St. Leger and was probably the highest-ranking Loyalist refugee in Canada from New York. In 1779, Governor Haldeman tasked Johnson with putting together a force to challenge the Sullivan Expedition in New York. But by the time Johnson assembled his force in late September, the expedition had already run its course. Haldeman did not blame Johnson for any delays. He had managed to assemble his force in a matter of weeks. It was the British who feared an attack on Niagara that delayed any counteroffensive into New York. So Johnson spent the winter of 1779-80 planning for raids the following year. Johnson led a successful raid in the spring, 
including his hometown, Johnstown. Those raids were an attempt to rescue Loyalists who were still in New York and who the Patriots had threatened to arrest and send to Albany. I discussed these spring raids back in episode 250. Over the summer of 1780, Johnson worked to recruit a 2nd Battalion of King's Royal Regiment from among the Loyalist refugees who were around Montreal. One purpose of this fall raid was to wipe out the Oneida crops and villages in New York. Unlike most of the Iroquois, the Oneida had mostly sided with the Patriots. Now Johnson assembled his force under great secrecy. Even several of his top officers were left in the dark. He left Montreal for Carleton Island on September 11th, and there he would assemble his army. He would connect not only with his other loyalist and regular soldiers, but also with the native soldiers under Joseph Brandt and Cornplanter. Now, part of the plan was that Colonel Christopher Carleton would lead his forces near Lake George to distract the Patriot armies near Albany. Those were the raids I discussed last time. Now, at the same time those raids were going on, Johnson would take his larger force to destroy the towns and crops about 70 miles further to the west. Delays, mostly due to illness, delayed the departure from Carlton Island until October 6th. By that time, Carlton had already begun his raid. It would take Johnson another 11 days to reach his targets in the Schoharie Valley. The raiders' primary goal was to destroy the food reserves from the fall harvests, not only of the Oneida, but of all Patriot communities that remained in the region. They would also destroy the houses, barns, and any other infrastructure that they could. Although Johnson had assembled the force in secrecy, he did make efforts to inform local Tories in the region to be prepared to join them, offering bounties and a share of seized property to those who provided assistance. Of course, word leaked to the Patriot leaders, who did their best to prepare to defend against these attacks. The British forces moved down the Charlotte River, an eastern branch of the Susquehanna. They entered the Schoharie Valley in upstate New York, where they faced three small forts to contest their attack. By this time, the whole region was used to many raids that swept across the region. Most of the forts were simply houses that had been reinforced to defend against smaller raids. Usually, if the locals could make it into these little forts, the raiders would bypass them and focus on the property outside the forts. The three unnamed forts in this area were simply referenced as the Upper Fort, the Middle Fort, and the Lower Fort. By late on October 16th, the British camped within a few miles of the forts. The following morning, they bypassed the Upper Fort and moved toward the Middle Fort, which seemed to be the most vulnerable of the three. They arrived at the fort just before daylight. The upper fort, which had detected the enemy, fired a signal gun to warn the other two forts of the enemy's approach. Now, the middle fort was under the command of a Continental officer, Major Melichthon Woolley. His garrison consisted of about 150 Continental soldiers and another 50 militia who had rallied to the fort upon receiving word of an imminent attack. The enemy outnumbered them by about 5 to 1, and also had cannon and mortars to launch a deadly attack against the fort. Woolsey had sent out a reconnaissance force of about 40 men who discovered the enemy's approach and then retreated back to the fort. When he saw the size of the force and the artillery arrayed against him, Major Woolsey was inclined to surrender. He had only limited ammunition, 
and could not hold out for very long. Colonel Johnson sent out a messenger, an officer from the Tory Regiment, Butler's Rangers, under a flag of truce to demand the fort's surrender. But before the messenger got within speaking distance, a rifle ball whizzed over his head, forcing the party to retreat. Captain Timothy Murphy had fired over their heads to prevent the British from giving terms to his commander, Major Woolsey. Murphy was a longtime veteran of the war. He'd enlisted in a Pennsylvania regiment in June of 1775. He was one of the very few regiments from outside New England to participate in the Siege of Boston that year. After the Battle of Long Island, he was promoted to sergeant and also fought at the battles of Trenton and Princeton. His abilities as a sharpshooter allowed him to transfer into the Rifle Corps under Daniel Morgan. He fought in the campaign that forced the British to surrender at Saratoga. By some accounts, he personally was the man who killed General Simon Fraser at Bemis Heights. He then transferred back to spend the winter at Valley Forge, and in July of 1778, General Washington ordered Murphy's company of riflemen to the New York frontier. He was stationed in the Schoharie Valley and later participated in the Sullivan Campaign to wipe out the Iroquois villages that were providing cover to Tory raiding parties. In 1779, Murphy's enlistment in the Continental Army had ended, but he stayed in the Schoharie Valley and continued to fight there as a militia officer. He married a local woman, Peggy Feek, who was with him at Middle Fort when this attack began. In the spring of 1780, Murphy and another man were ambushed and taken prisoner by Indians. They managed to free themselves and kill their captors. But as he faced capture once again at the Middle Fort, Murphy was determined not to surrender. And that was why he fired on the flag of truce without orders from Major Woolsey. After the British flag of truce withdrew, the British began firing on the fort again. The Americans returned fire, but with little effect on either side. The British Colonel Johnson sent out another messenger, again under a flag of truce, to demand the fort surrender. But once again, Murphy fired over their heads, forcing them to withdraw and continue the siege. His commander, Major Woolsey, was determined to receive the surrender terms and ordered Murphy not to fire again. Murphy retorted, quote, I'll die before they have me prisoner. Woolsey ordered someone to raise a white flag of surrender for the fort, but Murphy threatened to shoot any man who tried to do it. When the British attempted to approach for a third time under a flag of truce, Murphy fired again. An exasperated Major Woolsey threatened to shoot Murphy on the spot or have him arrested, but none of the men in the garrison were willing to try it. Frustrated that he could not command the garrison and surrender, Woolsey retreated into the basement of the stone house inside the fort and prepared for it to be overrun by the British. When second-in-command, Colonel Peter Vrooman, went to find Woolsey, the colonel complained that the garrison would not obey his commands, and he told Vrooman that he should take command and prepare for the British attack. The British attackers, however, had no plans for a lengthy siege and had no desire to storm the fort. So, after attempting for several hours to compel the fort's surrender, Colonel Johnson simply moved on, making a nominal attack on the lower fort, before continuing his rampage of burning the homes and crops of locals 
who were not committed to the Loyalist cause. Colonel Johnson later reported burning 600,000 bushels of grain. The Americans also noted the destruction of 200 buildings, including several churches. In the end, the garrison at Middle Fort suffered only one killed and two wounded, one of whom later died from his wounds. As Colonel Johnson continued his raid across the Mohawk Valley, he deployed about a hundred Loyalists and Indians across the river on the North Shore. Colonel John Brown, who was in command of Fort Paris nearby, learned about this smaller party that was apart from the main force, and he determined to attack them with about 400 militia. Brown was an experienced officer, and I've actually mentioned him in several past episodes. Brown was a militia officer when the war began, and part of the group led by Ethan Allen and Benedict Arnold that captured Fort Ticonderoga way back in 1775. Brown had also participated in the Quebec campaign, and despite an active war record, Brown is probably remembered as being one of the most outspoken critics of Benedict Arnold. Years before Arnold's treason, Brown famously declared that Arnold had an overwhelming obsession with money and that, quote, to get enough of it, he would sacrifice his country. Back in episode 162, I recounted Brown's attempt to goad Arnold into a duel. At the time, though, Arnold was being considered for a promotion to brigadier general and ignored the challenge since it might upset his chances at promotion. After Arnold did receive the promotion, Brown resigned his commission from the Continental Army in disgust. Brown continued to serve as a militia officer, and during the Saratoga campaign, Brown led a raid on Fort Ticonderoga, which was by that time behind British lines. In 1780, Brown was serving in New York under the command of Militia General Robert Van Rensselaer. Van Rensselaer was not really a military man. He came from a wealthy and influential family. The Van Rensselaers had been wealthy Dutch merchants in the region for generations. He also had ancestors from the Livingston and Schuyler families. In fact, his older sister, Catherine, was the wife of General Philip Schuyler. A Robert Van Rensselaer was a committed patriot, having served in the New York Provincial Congress in 1775 and as a legislature in the New York State Assembly since its founding in 1777. And despite the lack of any military experience, he received a commission as a colonel in the state militia at the beginning of the war in 1775. Several months before the fall action began in 1780, he received a promotion to brigadier general, again still without almost any military experience. Van Rensselaer ordered Brown to take command of Fort Paris near Stone Arabia after receiving word of Johnson's imminent attack in the area. Brown had at his command 250 to 300 men at Fort Paris. He managed to get that number up to nearly 400 with the addition of local militia, and set out after that smaller party of loyalists that was believed to be near the village of Stone Arabia. On the morning of October 19th, Colonel Brown led his force in search of that smaller force of loyalists who had been deployed to destroy some local crops and buildings. He encountered the enemy near Stone Arabia and almost immediately charged forward to attack. As it turned out, Brown did not encounter a force of 100 loyalists, but in fact the entire army of about 900 men. 
the larger enemy force quickly turned both of the American flanks and nearly surrounded them. Brown remained conspicuous on his horse trying to rally the men. He was shot and killed. Between 30 and 45 others were also killed in the ensuing battle. Local stories later reported that the Tories scalped and mutilated the bodies of the dead and stripped them of their clothing. The survivors on the American side scattered and tried to hide from the enemy. Some took refuge in a nearby farmhouse. Indians who were with the Tories set the house on fire and burned the occupants alive. Some of the force managed to return to Fort Paris. A few made it to nearby Fort Kaiser, which the enemy considered attacking, but then moved on, thinking it too well defended. Some of the Americans who fled the battle at Stone Arabia moved south and met up with the larger force of New York militia under General Van Rensselaer. The general was leading this larger force from Albany. After joining up with more local militia and a company of Oneida warriors, Van Rensselaer had under his command a force of about 1,500 men. After learning from the survivors that Colonel Brown had been killed, Van Rensselaer moved his force in pursuit of the enemy. His army halted, however, to contend with a small guard of about 40 loyalists who prevented the army from fording a river. Eventually, the enemy pulled back in the face of the superior numbers. As the army attempted to ford the river, Van Rensselaer rode off to Fort Plain, where he had an early dinner with Governor George Clinton. Many of his officers were critical of the fact that General Van Rensselaer had left his army during this critical time and delayed the advance on the enemy. The head of the Oneida attachment, Lieutenant Colonel Louis Ataya Taranagta of the Continental Army, accused Van Rensselaer of being a Tory for his dereliction of duty. Van Rensselaer continued in command, dividing his force into three columns to march north in search of the enemy. The British under Johnson had learned of the large approaching enemy body, and having already fought a battle against Colonel Brown's forces that morning, they now prepared for a second battle that afternoon. Johnson deployed his forces in a defensive position on a peninsula created by a bend in the river, an area known as Clock's Field. One of the American columns began to attack across an open field against British regulars directly under the command of Colonel Johnson. Another column, which included the Oneida Indians, attacked a Loyalist force consisting of Hessian Jaegers and Mohawk warriors under Joseph Brandt. Since the battle began late in the day, the fighting before dusk only lasted less than an hour. After dark, General Van Rensselaer ordered an end to the fighting and to prepare to renew the attack in the morning. He then withdrew several miles back to Fox's Fort. The following morning, the Americans found that the British had withdrawn, leaving their campfires burning. Some of the soldiers wanted to pursue, but their leaders wanted to wait until Van Rensselaer caught back up with the army. Otherwise, their smaller force might run into a larger ambush and suffer a fate similar to that of Colonel Brown. After waiting some time, they learned that the main force under Van Rensselaer was not advancing toward them, but was already on its way back to Albany. The British forces under Johnson continued to withdraw back to Niagara, burning crops and houses as they went. Now, technically, the battle was considered an American victory because they held the field. 
but the British forces were permitted to escape after a destructive raid that upset many locals. Later, the backlash against Van Rensselaer's tentative advance and hasty retreat leveled charges that he must be a secret Tory. Van Rensselaer faced a court-martial several months later, but was acquitted. The Johnson expedition managed to inflict a great deal of property damage. There are also a great many accounts among patriots of atrocities committed, not only by the Indians, but also the Loyalists, who were former neighbors of these people in New York. Numerous stories of the murder of women and children, taking scalps, and mutilating bodies. Even if some of these stories maybe were exaggerated, the raids only increased the bitter sentiments on both sides of this increasingly brutal struggle. Next week, though, we're going to head out west again, where we catch up with Colonel Augustine de la Balme, a French officer who was a veteran of the Continental Army, in his attempt to capture Detroit. Podcasters like Mike never know who will be inspired by their message. I'm Tracy Lawson, an author and historian. I once heard a podcaster comment, we rarely see history from a woman's point of view, and decided, hey, I'm a writer. I should do something about that. So I did. My novel, Answering Liberty's Call, Anna Stone's Daring Ride to Valley Forge, is based on a true story about my sixth great-grandmother and has been called a grand and rollicking revolutionary adventure. While on a solo horseback journey to Valley Forge with supplies for her soldier husband, Anna takes on the responsibility of delivering an urgent message to General Washington. But it's not long before a mysterious man is hot on her trail and trying to steal the letter. Can Anna outwit him and make it safely to the picket line? A version of Anna's story for elementary school kids called Revolutionary Anna is the first book in my Liberty Bells series for young readers. Liberty Bell's books feature female patriots who advanced the cause of liberty, and they're a great way to get kids hyped up about America 250, which is just around the corner. My books are available in print and ebook on Amazon. For listeners of the American Revolution podcast, I'm offering 15% off personalized signed copies of books ordered through my website, tracylawsonbooks.com. That's T-R-A-C-Y-L-A-W-S-O-N-Books.com. Use the promo code AMREVPODCAST. Hey, thanks for joining the American Revolution Podcast After Show. Thanks to my Patreon supporters in the Alexander Hamilton Club, George Davis, Mike Hager, and Michael Gaylord, and to Robert Morris Circle supporters, TJ Walker and Kurt Avard. Thanks also for one-time gifts via PayPal or Venmo from Michael Krizet, Catherine Clark, and Michael Parvis. I truly appreciate your support. I'm going to be at History Camp Valley Forge next month, May 20th, 2023. This is the first History Camp in the Philadelphia area ever. We had planned one for 2020, but it got shut down just a few weeks after the pandemic began. History Camp has been a tradition in Boston for many years and has spread to other towns as well. Now, Despite its name, History Camp is for adults. It's a chance for mostly amateur historians to get together and hear presentations on a wide variety of topics. It's an all-day event, meaning you can attend a bunch of presentations and will have a choice of events for each time slot. There are also events and tours the day before and the day after the main event, so plan for a long weekend if you can. 
I just got the schedule of presentations for History Camp. There's a pretty amazing lineup of speakers. The event will have seven different time slots with four different speakers in each time slot. Two of the rooms for every time slot are dedicated to topics related to the American Revolution specifically. And a few of the other classes that don't fit into those two time slots are also somewhat revolution-related. So this really is the most revolution-centric history camp ever. Ironically, my presentation will not be revolution-related. I'm going to talk about the Philadelphia Bible Riots of 1844. You've probably never heard of them, but it's not only an interesting story, it really had a major impact on the course of U.S. history. If you can make it to this event, it's going to be a blast. Remember, May 20th at Valley Forge. I can't recommend it enough. If you want to get tickets, you can get more details at historycamp.org. Now, this week we saw the final battles that ended the fall campaign of 1780 from Canada into New York. The loss of Colonel John Brown was a particularly tragic one. He was involved in so many of the key events earlier in the war and in my opinion, was one of the most influential military officers in the New York campaigns. Unfortunately, his contributions go largely unremembered. And this is typical of men who died during the war without a chance to be a part of building the new country. It probably also doesn't help that he shares a name, but no relation, with the more famous abolitionist John Brown, who tried to launch an unsuccessful slave revolt shortly before the Civil War began. The last time, I recommended a really good book that focuses on the fall 1780 campaign in New York. So this week, I'm going to go completely off-topic with my recommendation and mention a new book that was just released a few weeks ago called The Enemy Harassed, Washington's New Jersey Campaign of 1777 by Jim Stemple. I got an advanced look at this book some time ago and very much enjoyed it coverage of the Forage War, which is the other name for this campaign, is one of the most overlooked topics of the American Revolution. It's the guerrilla war that took place in New Jersey after the Continental Army's victories at Trenton and Princeton. Stemple is an award-winning author of several books focusing on military history, and this one is his latest. So if the topic interests you, get a copy of The Enemy Harassed. My online recommendation is called Warfare in the Mohawk Valley, transcribed from the Pennsylvania Gazette, 1780, 81, 82, and 83. This is literally a booklet that transcribes various newspaper articles from the Pennsylvania Gazette covering the Mohawk Valley in the final years of the American Revolution. A guy from Schenectady named William Efner went back through the original newspapers and transcribed the articles. His work is available on archive.org. I love contemporary sources, so this is one that I really do appreciate. As always, I've included links to the booklet on my blog and website. Go to www.amrevpodcast.com for more details. My question this week comes from Austin Millinder, who asks, For prisoners... What was the difference between being on parole and escaping or being rescued? I understand it was based on an honor system, but what would be the difference between a paroled man running away, breaking parole, versus escaping? If someone came to rescue you while you were on parole, 
would you have to refuse on account of your promise not to run away? Why would one method, i.e. escape or rescue, be considered honorable, while the other, breaking parole, be considered dishonorable? Well, Austin, it was a common feature of 18th century armies in Europe to have parole. Most enemies had parole to deal with the problem of captured prisoners because they didn't have the resources to keep prisoners in captivity. Formal agreements were usually established between countries for the release of prisoners on parole. These were known as cartels. They helped countries avoid having to kill prisoners or keep them in conditions of such deprivation that they would probably die. Both sides appreciated a system of parole, which does derive from the French word for honor. Paroled soldiers simply agreed that they would not fight again until exchanged, and oftentimes they agreed to abide by certain other terms like remaining within a certain geographic area. Many times a paroled prisoner might return home and simply await his exchange with an enemy prisoner that would allow both of them to return to the fight. Now, the American Revolution was a little bit different because the British did not recognize the U.S. as an enemy power. Rather, these were British subjects engaged in the crime of rebellion. Most captured American soldiers, especially early in the war, were imprisoned without parole aboard ships, prison ships in New York City, or other buildings around town where they were kept under guard. These people were not under parole, and they were free to attempt to escape however they could. To avoid these deadly conditions, though, the British did offer some, but not all, officers the opportunity for limited parole. Now, this meant usually that they had to remain within British lines, usually in New York City or on Long Island. On their honor, they would not try to escape. Didn't matter if a rescue party found them, they were honor-bound not to return to fighting until exchanged. In other cases, militia were permitted to return home on parole. This very commonly happened in the southern campaigns. Militiamen were often happy to accept parole, not only because it kept them out of horrific conditions, but because it gave them an honorable way to sit out the rest of the war and go back to work on their farms. Americans also often paroled British or Hessian prisoners and required them to remain in places on the western frontier where they could not easily get back to their own lines. Under the conditions of the parole, they were usually free to go out and work for pay and live in those local communities. This actually provided Americans with a valuable civilian labor force to grow crops and do other things that could not be done because so many of the local men were away in the army. Many of these prisoners really enjoyed the local communities where they lived in, and they continued to live in them after the war ended. Now, in some cases, men broke their parole and returned to fighting. In many instances, it was just impossible to control for this. There's a famous case in South Carolina of a man named Isaac Haynes. He was captured in Charleston and returned to his plantation on parole. Later, the British tried to force him to join a Loyalist regiment. Haynes believed that this violated the terms of his parole, and he took up arms again with the Patriots. After capture a second time, the British hanged him for violating his parole. If you accepted parole, you were honor-bound not to return to fighting, no matter what. If you have a question you'd like me to answer, please reach out to me via email or on Twitter, Facebook, Quora, or Reddit. Well, that's all for this time. I hope you will join me again next time for another 
American Revolution podcast. What does Sputnik have to do with student loans? How did a set of trembling hands end the Soviet Union? How did inflation kill moon bases? And how did a former president decide to run for a second non-consecutive term? These are among the topics we deal with on the My History Can Beat Up Your Politics podcast. We tell stories of history that relate to today's news events. Give a listen. My History Can Beat Up Your Politics wherever you get podcasts.